Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by Doohop. Doohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at doohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and everyone knows what April showers bring, right? May passengers. We're moving forward with what will be a very busy summer travel season that will test airlines, airports, government agencies, and travelers all at the same time. And we have a lot to talk about, from airlines to trucking to celebrity gossip channel TMZ. Really, we are. Scott McCartney, we're also going to talk to one of my good friends and former bosses, Dave Siegel, who's had quite a varied and fascinating career in aviation and travel. I'm really looking forward to that. Hello, Ben. Another sign that summer is about to begin, besides more airline schedule changes and flight cancellations, is that classes are ending at both universities where you and I teach. We're going to talk some about something that sounds to me like a Professor Ben Baldanza final exam. Design an airline with absurdly cheap tickets that would be appreciated by none other than the Wall Street Journal. Am I right, Ben? Is that the kind of test you'd give? That's funny, Scott. Well, my final exams usually aren't that hard to design a whole airline, but they do test what the students learn through the semester. Maybe I should think about that for a future class, so I like the idea, Scott. <laughs> well, let's get right into the news. Another week, another Southwest Airlines technology problem. This one was fairly contained. Southwest cut off departures on the morning of April 18th, and more than 2,000 flights were delayed about half of the airline's schedule that day. But it was a Tuesday morning in April, so the pain wasn't that severe since it wasn't all that busy. Technology problems are an ongoing concern for all airlines, but a particular critical issue at Southwest after the massive meltdown at Christmas time, which was blamed in part on inadequate technology. The real test of Southwest technology will come this summer, of course, but problems in April don't generate a lot of confidence that Southwest has its operation systems in order yet. One other note on that, our friend John McDonald called out Southwest PR on social media after the airline blamed the technology failure on a third-party contractor. John noted that it's the airline's technology that failed. The airline is what the customer sees, and Southwest shouldn't try to shirk blame. Companies need to own their own problems if consumers are to trust them. I agree with John on that, Scott. You can outsource process, 
but you can't outsource responsibility. Yeah, I totally agree, Ben. And I really commend John for calling out Southwest on that. I do think this summer will be a real test for CEO Bob Jordan, who is really only a year into the top job at Southwest. Bob came up through the technology ranks. This is his area. If technology is really the issue, you'd think Bob is exactly the guy you want running the company. And that may well be the case. Millions of Southwest customers and tens of thousands of Southwest employees are pulling for him. I still think the size and complexity of Southwest make it extremely difficult to efficiently manage in a disruption. But I think we all agree that this summer will be a huge test of whether Southwest has really fixed its problems. If it sails through smoothly through summer, the next big test will be the winter holidays. Unlike universities, the tests don't really stop coming. Let's talk a bit about the crazy busy summer that is coming. We've talked on past episodes about summer schedule cuts because of a shortage of air traffic controllers. We've talked about regional airline service cuts because of the shortage of pilots. We've talked about high demand this summer, extraordinary bookings so far, and high fares. So another issue hitting airlines for summer, 737 delivery delays. This just recently came up. Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun says about 45 to 50 of its workhorse jets that were scheduled to be delivered ahead of the peak summer flying season will be delayed, hitting airlines right when it hurts the most. Spirit Aerosystems, which makes significant fuselage sections for Boeing, notified Boeing of a quality issue. Boeing is still suffering from delivery delays on its wide-body jets. Now Boeing's only narrow-body product is suffering quality issues. Delivery delays helped airlines when demand was weak, but now it's really going to take a toll. The day the delay announced, Boeing shares fell 5% and Spirit Aerosystem shares dropped 20%. Both American and Southwest said they are in discussions with Boeing about a revised delivery schedule this year and maybe beyond. This involves two fittings that join the vertical tail to the aft fuselage. It's not a safety of flight issue, Boeing says, and the FAA seems to agree but some planes already in service may have more downtime, too, to correct the problem. We'll see if that affects summer as well. The tests just keep coming, just like you said, Scott. You know, there's one sort of bright side to the Boeing delay, and it's not really bright for customers, but it might be bright for the industry. The one thing that gets this industry caught all the time, Scott, is too many seats chasing too few passengers. That's when fares drop and customers love that, but airlines tend to lose money in that world. One positive of Boeing delaying deliveries is that airlines won't be able to add too much capacity in what is going to be a busy summer. That means fares will be a little bit higher, but fares will also likely cover the airline's costs. Yeah, it's interesting, Ben, but you know, the downside to that is once Boeing does get everything figured out, and and Airbus too has had its delays, uh, I do worry that 
those planes are going to get delivered right when traffic drops off. And especially if later this year we have even a short recession, you could see a scenario where all of a sudden the, here come the airplanes and the passengers are nowhere to be found. That's right, Scott. But some of the planes that Boeing is delivering would likely be replacing older, less fuel-efficient, and more carbon-intensive airplanes, too. Mm -hmm. So in the case that's happening, that's good and will be easier for the airlines to deal with, even in a weaker period. Yeah. Well, okay, Scott, file this under the ominous oh-no possibilities for summer. Pro-Russian hackers attacked the website of Eurocontrol, the air traffic control agency coordinating flights within Europe. The Wall Street Journal reported last week that the cyber attack didn't disrupt air traffic, but it was ongoing, and it did impact the online filing of flight plans. Eurocontrol says flight operations are ring-fenced. That's the word they used, ring-fenced, and not in any danger. But there is fear that as Western support of Ukraine takes a greater toll on Russia, Russia will respond with more attacks, like cyber attacks on the West, and ATC airports and other aviation infrastructure vital to economies could be topics. And file this one under the how dumb do you have to be. The Transportation Security Administration, the TSA, reported an increase of more than 10% in the number of recovered firearms for the first quarter of 2023 compared to the same time last year. TSA said officers intercepted 1,508 guns at airport security checkpoints in the first three months of the year. That's almost 17 firearms a day, and more than 93% of them were loaded. Air travel is up, so TSA is processing more people, and TSA technology is getting better. I guess you'd expect the number to go up but you think people would get the message someday. You know, you really would. I was traveling recently and signs were just right in your face greeting you at the, in, in line at the TSA checkpoint about firearms. Stories abound about arrests, and yet more than 15 times a day in the U.S., someone carelessly puts a loaded firearm on a carry-on baggage belt. It really does defy logic. Here's another item that might seem illogical, though not nearly as dangerous. My successor at the Wall Street Journal, Don Gilbertson, took three transatlantic flights on little-known, super-cheap airlines to see what it's like. This is the kind of hardship we used to do to bring people accurate, strong reporting. This is a timely issue since demand for transatlantic seats is expected to be really strong. Delta says it's already sold 75% of its transatlantic seats for summer, and fares are expected to be really high. So Don flew Norse from London to New York, and then Play from New York to Paris, and then French B, B-E-E, from Paris to Los Angeles. 
The Wall Street Journal paid for the flights, as always, and the airlines weren't notified of her plans. Her verdict, I'll quote from the story, worthy contenders at the right price for those of us not spoiled by lie-flat beds and fancy amenity kits. She notes limited schedules can be an issue, especially if the airline has to cancel a flight. French B flies A350 widebodies and Norse flies 787 Dreamliners. So these are new, widebody, very nice airplanes. French B has 411 seats on its A350 900s, however. Delta, by comparison, has 306 on the same airplane. Icelandic discounter Play flies A320s and makes stops in Iceland. You give up a lot with these guys. There's no TSA pre-check because their systems don't tie into TSA computers. There's no free Wi-Fi. There are very strict weight limits for carry-on and checked baggage. And those, those limits make Frontier and Spirit look generous and can quickly eat into ticket price savings with baggage fees. You'll pay extra for seat selection and food and drink. But Don reports they're all credible alternatives for people looking to get across the Atlantic cheap. I read Don's story and I had to smile because there's always people looking for really low fares. It's questionable to me whether all three of these airlines are going to make it. Flying long haul is a very difficult thing to do with really low fares because even cost inefficient airlines are pretty low cost when they fly a big airplane long distance. That creates a lot of ASMs. And when you're dividing by ASMs, it's easy to get those costs down. But it's great that she had that article. I wish she had tried JetBlue's flight from New York to London as part of that. Well, you know, she did note in the story that uh, there were instances where she would prefer JetBlue because I think the price was not that much more and you certainly wouldn't pay as many fees and you'd, you'd get better service in the cabin and, and certainly better seat pitch. Uh, so there were lots of reasons for that, and she did mention JetBlue. Uh, I think it's really interesting. I, I think you're you're right about survival here. You, you know, the history has always been once fuel prices go up uh, for whatever emergency happens in the world or conflict or or crisis or or whatever, that's really tough on these guys. And you know, there will always be people trying. <laughs> A Wall Street analyst once said to me, there will always be airlines, they'll just have different names. And I think that really applies uh, in this space. But I, I wish them all luck. I do too. And Charles Duncan, the CEO of Norris, jokingly has a six-word business plan. Don't make the mistakes Norwegian did. <laughs> well, I hope that works for him. They're using the same airplanes. They're flying a lot of the same routes. I, I hope it's a different outcome. Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. This week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. 
With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And Dohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Dohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Dohop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and we're very excited to have with us one of my best friends and former bosses, Dave Siegel. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. Well, Dave, from a Bain consultant early in your career to uh, an airline exec, CEO, and more, tell us about your best and most challenging situations in your career so far, because I'm sure there's a lot to come, too. Well, thanks, Ben. Um, You know, if you remember our days in U.S. Airways, which I'm sure you remember well, I think that has to be probably the most memorable and challenging uh, business situation in my career with, you know, the aftermath of 9-11 and the restructuring that that forced. And as you know, my, my career has really been turnaround based, which there's always another broken airline, right? So that keeps you busy. But in the U.S. Airways situation, you know, a couple of things were going on there. One was we were blazing a trail of restructuring post 9-11. So we were going first into bankruptcy, first, uh, you know, dealing with underfunded, basically insolvent pension issues and so on. But there, if you recall, we had the Alabama uh, State Pension Fund as our equity sponsor uh, in our process. And they had a very mercurial leader who was a little bit you know, I'd say whimsical and capricious in his decision making and really didn't understand the business. And that presented a number of challenges. So in the turnaround business, you often have these brushes with death. And we had a number of those near death experiences at Airways. Uh, But I remember most trying to sort out a really critical issue with GE and trying to get our sponsor to understand the issue and to sort of and make a deal on that. And we were literally two hours from liquidation where we were staring each other down. And if we didn't get this resolved with GE, we were going from chapter 11 to chapter seven liquidation. Um, so that's probably the most memorable experience. I've been, you know, weeks away from, from liquidation, uh, let alone bankruptcy, but I've never been, you know, two hours away. So, uh, I'll forever remember that. And, and the lesson there was just to keep your cool, stay calm. Uh, and even as the clock is winding down, keep your focus on, on getting the right answer. And luckily it didn't go down to, you know, minutes, but, you know, it was just under two hours when we, when we got the resolution and, um, 
uh, that was a scary time for sure. I'm curious, Dave, uh, was it elation when you got that or, or was it just relief? Um, uh, how did you feel? Well, I was pretty exhausted. <laughs> uh, and, and it wasn't, I, I think I was, I, I wasn't able to feel anything at that point. I was pretty uh, numb from the experience. Uh, I was certainly very relieved, but I was, for those few hours, as we were trying to get something done, I was alternating between, you know, what will we actually do in a chapter seven? Uh, and what would that mean for the employees? And, you know, how could we find some kind of softer landing in that ugly scenario while obviously trying to avoid it? But I was so physically and mentally worn down um, from that process. I'm not sure there's any emotion left. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so on... On to more uh, digestible things. Um, for for a time, you put on a hairnet and ran Gate Gourmet. Uh, what was it like being a service provider in in the industry? You know, that was a, an amazing experience. I think if I was putting that hairnet on today, there would be a little bit less hair to cover. But you know, I spent again because I just did all these airline restructurings, a lot of time beating up on suppliers. And probably not having the proper appreciation for how hard, you know, suppliers work uh, for their airline customers uh, and how difficult a customer the airlines really can be at times. And when I switched, which was leaving U.S. Airways after taking them out of bankruptcy, so it was still close enough to the 9-11 kind of restructuring period. And since Airways went first, now you had Northwest and Delta and other airlines going into bankruptcy and you had airlines uh, trying to avoid bankruptcy. So they were continuing to you know beat up on their suppliers, but I got a taste of my own medicine, you know, and it was really humbling. And, you know, I, it was a good thing for me to have to, uh, switch, you know, to the other side of the table because uh, I probably just didn't, well, I certainly didn't grasp the importance of, of certain suppliers and again, their, their, their role in, in the value chain. Um, and so I learned a couple of things. One is I learned how to navigate in that, that really difficult supplier world. And I, I certainly made some mistakes early on and learned from those lessons, but I also came away with just, a, again, a totally different appreciation of the other really important players in the aviation space uh, and how you really need to rely on your suppliers as partners while still driving the right economic deals. And I concluded that it would be really valuable for the industry if every airline CEO had to run a supplier for some period of time <laughs> to have that appreciation and perspective. Well, now you're the chairman of Swissport, among other things. I imagine that gate experience must have helped with this. The ground handling business, on the other hand, has to be really tough. Yeah, it's a very tough business. Uh, you know, you're effectively selling labor at the end of the day, and that's a, a tough business to be in. So there are a lot of parallels to gate 
And in fact, you know, Gate, Gate Gourmet and Swissport were both, uh, along with SR Technic, were the uh, divisions that came out of uh, the Swiss Air Group and, and its restructuring. So they were sister companies. And, you know, I, I will say that the, the hard learned experience at Gate, and I was chairman CEO there for five years, and then I stayed on the board for another five. So I stayed with the company for 10 years. That experience is definitely directly transferable to uh, the Swissport role. Certainly a difference because as we were talking earlier, you know, it's been a long 30 year career, but I thought I'd seen it all right with multiple Gulf Wars, the financial crisis, SARS, MERS, you know, all these exogenous shocks until we all met COVID, which uh, has probably been the most challenging time. So in a business where you sell labor uh, and labor costs, especially for the kind of the lower and lower skilled labor have gone up dramatically and you can't find people who want to actually work and come to work. It's that much more challenging. So uh, definitely uh, a parallel, but with a new twist with, I think, an even more challenging exogenous shock. And I think what, what, what I try to do is two things, you know, understand the customer needs and their challenges uh, and priorities for cost management uh, in, in today's difficult environment and the flexibility you have to offer uh, on the one hand, but also have them appreciate, you know, what the new world order looks like uh, and how you have to manage labor differently and sell the value proposition that we at Swissport can manage labor. That's the recruitment training and retention um, and the productivity uh, better than any other supplier. And we can deliver more reliable operations. So lowest price on a bid is not lowest cost to the airline when they understand the disruption costs of understaffing and they understand, you know, the embedded costs in running a less reliable operation because your vendor doesn't support you properly. You were uh, also for a time uh, chairman of Sun Country Airlines, uh, and and I think as as I recall, helped take it public through that. Sun Country was was really brilliant during the pandemic by quickly shifting to Amazon packages when when passengers stayed home. Is that flexibility a highlight of Sun Country? Uh, it absolutely is. Um, you know, Apollo bought the business in April. Uh, 2018. And, you know, it had been around for 35 years or so and never really found a business model that worked. And when we looked at the business, we saw that we had to restructure it to, to become more efficient from an operational perspective. But we saw that it had this really core capability in running a really good operation and had the agility to do a lot of different things. Um, and so we took that business and we transformed it by getting a better cost structure, but also saying, look, we're in the scheduled passenger business, but, you know, the way we serve the customer doesn't really work. But if we had a sculpted schedule that was very flexible, leveraging the agility of the company, um, that would 
drive the best financial results. And then we looked at the charter business and said, we can grow that charter business. And again, there's a lot of ad hoc flying in that, uh, but use the flexibility, Julia, the company to deliver on that in a cost-effective, operationally reliable way. Uh, but then we were looking for a third leg of the stool. And you know, we eventually landed on the cargo business with Amazon. Um, and we did talk to some other uh, cargo operators before that. And we looked at other ideas on how to kind of create a third leg of the stool, if you will. Uh, but we didn't get there. You know, it took us a couple of years to, to, to find that opportunity and figure it out. And I think that was a result of being good, but we also got lucky because just as we put that all together, you know, the pandemic hit. So it gave us this opportunity as we were drawing down on the passenger side to, you know, uh, grow the cargo business uh, without missing a beat. In fact, you know, we had no furloughs during the pandemic. In fact, we were continuing to hire pilots. So, we were good as a management team, I think, in, in creating that opportunity, but we got lucky, you know, just on the timing there. And ultimately, I'd probably take lucky over good anytime. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just so for readers who might not know, you mentioned Apollo and Apollo Global Management is the, the very large private equity firm that you work with. Yes. And, you know, Apollo is actually the largest, most successful private equity firm uh, they manage about a hundred billion of private equity funds, and they have over five hundred billion of assets under management. So they're they're one of the two largest financial firms, along with Blackstone, uh, that play in private equity. And I've been with them now five and a half years, and they came to me in October of twenty seventeen when they wanted to build kind of an aviation investment practice because there was a void left. I think by uh, the folks at TPG, who Ben and I know well, and they Apollo previously had the Merck's aircraft leasing business, but that was it. And we've over the last five and a half years done a number of investments on the equity and, and debt side, um, and have actually now built you know a very successful uh, uh, portfolio and, and practice there. Our most recent transaction that we closed was Atlas Air. And I've left Sun Country uh, as of March, and I'm now chairman of Atlas Air. That's fantastic, Dave. But let's go back to Sun Country for a moment. Sun Country also had the first deal with Landline, the company that uses buses as short-haul regional feed. David Sunday, the CEO of Landline, came on our show and talked about that business model. You've run express operations at big airlines, too. What do you think about using buses the way Landline is using them with Sun Country? Well, look, let me say David Sunday is a great uh, executive and business partner and doing a fantastic job at Landline. So uh, I know everyone at, at Sun Country is really excited about that relationship and partnership, and we have a lot of respect for, for David. So it's a really positive relationship, I think, on both sides. You know, that idea, it's working well at Sun, at Sun Country, and it's actually, though, not a new idea. If you remember our time back at Continental, when I ran Continental Express, we had a bus operation 
uh, in a number of markets out of Newark and Cleveland that were markets under 100 miles. Newark um, to Allentown. Yeah, Allentown was one of them. Canton Akron was another. But we had, you know, probably half a dozen markets um, that worked really well on a long-term basis and making that seamless connection. And we also did something similar with Mountain Air Express out of Denver with Frontier. So I think it's a proven model uh, that's worked, you know, for a number of years. I think David is is taking that model to another level and really running an, an excellent operation. But in today's world, it's even more relevant because when you think about the pilot shortage and you think about the cost of regional feed, those closer in markets are, you know, they were tough to serve before, but they're, I'd say, basically borderline impossible to serve now. So I think the the model, which was always an interesting one on a niche basis, has a lot of potential to grow a lot uh, across the nation as the regional networks get reconfigured. And I think, you know, David's doing a phenomenal job uh, building out the landline business. I think it's going to serve, you know, as an example of, of a model that works nationally. That's so interesting. A- another model that you've been involved in in the airline business was ExoJet. You ran that for a while. What what was it like in that sector of aviation with private jets? And was it similar to commercial airlines or very different? Uh, very different, very different. And it was a fun experience uh, for sure. There's a lot of glamour. It's a lot more glamorous than the commercial business um, and interesting clients that you meet. You know, it's so different because you have a customer that's willing to pay and pay a lot uh, for the service. Now that presents its own challenges because as you can imagine, when you're paying a lot, you demand a lot. So it takes the service level, you know, to a whole new stratosphere. But the big thing we did at ExoJet, which was a TPG sponsored company, when I came in, you saw how it was a very different customer segment um, that was not, it was more service sensitive than price sensitive, but you saw this incredible inefficiency in the different business models that were out there serving private aviation. And so we brought in a team of commercial airline optimization folks, guys like Ted Bottomer, who uh, uh, Ben knows well, who has a PhD from MIT. Uh, and we built optimization uh, systems, whether it was fleet allocation or in pricing revenue management to more efficiently run the business. So we try to bring that toolkit from the commercial world to the private jet world. And we also did things like standardize the fleets to get scale and so on uh, for maintenance and pilot training and, and so forth. So we brought a lot of those concepts. And then once we made the business more efficient, then we were able to at least partially democratize the business by being able to offer much lower fares and prices um, for our product. And we specialized leveraging the Citation 10 aircraft in the Transcon market. And we were able to price the product, you know, one third to one half the competition, deliver a better experience and make a good margin because we had all these efficiencies and, uh, you know, we were competing against companies that were sort of stuck in the old business model. So it was a fantastic experience 
and it just shows i think there's this the 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 power of the accumulated knowledge of the of the commercial business and how that's transferable to adjacent spaces and other industries well dave in your career you've worked for a bunch of different leaders and you've learned from some and probably been influenced by some. What are the best examples of leadership you've seen outside of yourself, of course? Well, uh, thank you, Ben. I wouldn't put myself in that category. I'm still trying to learn, but I try to get better over time. Uh, You know, I think I've had a successful career because I'm a reasonably smart guy and I work really hard, but I've been blessed with working with people who could teach me a lot. And the two leaders that taught me the most, you're familiar with, one is Gordon Bethune at Continental, an amazing leader. And, and, and we all saw you know, Gordon a couple of weeks ago at, at the Duke Summit. Uh, you know, Gordon had this gift for leadership uh, and he really had me understand and focus on and appreciate, you know, the criticality of the the rank and file employee group and, you know, how to uh, invest the time and energy uh, to really get them engaged and, 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 you know, being a, a critical part of the success of the company. So I learned a lot from, from Gordon on the employee side. And then Steve Wolf, who you and I work with at U.S. Airways, you know, perhaps the smartest guy I've, I've ever worked with, you know, just a brilliant guy who was a strategic visionary and he had a grasp of any problem that was, a, you know, usually a level or two above anybody else, myself included. Uh, and Steve really... Um, I think he, even though I was a sort of a Bain strategy consultant, you know, early in my career, I think he took my strategic thinking to another level, but, but importantly, he taught me really, I think the value of supplier relationships and how to really strategically partner with your critical suppliers, you know, to drive more value in the business over the long term. So I think I've learned, you know, the employee stuff, if you will, from from Gordon and the, I'd say, partner piece from from Steve. And Dave, I'm uh, you're you're also a funny guy with a smart wit. I'm not sure that came from either uh, Gordon or Steve, but how has that helped you through tough business times? Well, both are funny guys in different ways, and. It, <laughs> As you know, Gordon has uh, lots of colorful language. Um, you know, I, I try to maintain a sense of humor, uh, you know, in everything that I do. And, and ben, ben will remember those really stressful days at Continental when we were trying to restructure the business. And one of the things Ben and I did for therapy was watch, you know, the Beavis and Butthead show uh, <laughs> at, at night to decompress. But... Uh, Sorry for outing you on that, Ben. But uh, so, but by the way, let me just interject. That would have been a great lead in a Wall Street Journal leader. <laughs> Wish we had known that. <laughs> well, Mike Judge is uh, is is definitely a hero of mine. But when you're in this industry, which 
deals with these exogenous shocks and other, you know, difficult challenges. Um, and you're never comfortable. If things are going really well, you're looking over your shoulder and, you know, a lot of the time you're trying to dig yourself out of, you know, some big mess. It takes, it takes, a, you know, a lot of energy. It takes a lot of personal resiliency and it, it takes a sense of humor because when you're in these really tense times, you know, you have to, you know, find a way to break the tension and keep perspective. Uh, and I find, you know, if you keep your sense of humor up, then you can kind of keep it together. And, and I think back to that few hour countdown to the liquidation of, of U.S. Airways and, you know, going back and forth. I was kind of Henry Kissinger going back and forth with the retirement system of Alabama and, and the GE folks. And, you know, I was trying to e explain, uh, you know, what the issue was. And, and ultimately, I, I decided that, that the best way to describe the issue was that as we we're trying to set up with GE, they were looking for schmuck insurance um, on, <laughs> on, on, on the, the financial deal that they were uh, putting together. But look, if you don't have a sense of humor, it's hard to be in this business. Right. Because it'll take a lot out of you. So and going through life with 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 as much laughter as possible, I think, is 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 always the best approach. I think that's a, a great business waiting to happen. There are a lot of industries where you could make a lot of money selling schmuck insurance. <laughs> well, as, as a schmuck, I can appreciate that one. So. <laughs> Dave, when you and I were working together, I always really appreciated the ability to laugh. Not that we were laughing at the really tough decisions and the really tough consequences of those decisions, but it did sort of lighten the mood so that when we needed to focus, we really could. So thank you for that. No, I appreciate that. And I think, you know, Ben, you know, part of it also was, and people were very clear, right? We used humor judiciously, right? There was laughter, right? But to your point, we were breaking the tension. We were very serious about, you know, the business issues and the consequences of some of the decisions we were making. But when you're involved with turnarounds, and I remember when, when I got to U.S. Airways, we had to make a lot of changes to the team, which included, you know, elevating Ben, which was a you know, one of the best decisions we made and an easy one. But there were a lot of people who just didn't get it. You know, the team that got you in the trouble is not going to get you out of trouble typically. And you have to change out what usually ends up being 80% of the team. And there's 20% that's actually just had the wrong boss and they can make, make those adjustments. But you've got people there who are just overwhelmed by the, you know, the pressure of, about to file bankruptcy or being in bankruptcy or worrying about making payroll week to week. And so when you found the appropriate ways to relieve the tension, I think that helped with folks uh, because there are a lot of people walking around pretty scared. And so it's the judicious use of humor um, and being mindful not to, not to cross a line there as well. Well, Dave, you outed me with Beavis and Butthead. What's something our listeners would be surprised to know about you that you're willing to out? That's a good question. Uh, you know, 
I, I have a hard time thinking about that one, but but maybe it's you know a question of career choices because my childhood dream was to be a marine archaeologist, and for a long time, even while I was in the airline business, up until they stopped the subscription, I used to subscribe to certain archaeology magazines, uh, and I still do a lot of reading to keep up with what's going on in, in archaeology generally in marine archaeology. And I have a few good friends who are marine archaeologists. So that might have been a higher and better use of, you know, a career choice, perhaps. I'm obviously passionate about the airline business, which is why I've been in it for so long. But I've always wanted to be a marine archaeologist, and I haven't given up that uh, that dream quite yet. So it might be my, my second career. Well, well, you might argue that w- when you're a turnaround specialist, you're, you're working on things underwater to begin with. And, and there's a lot of archaeology going on underwater. So maybe it is the same. Dave, it's been great having you on the show. Um, learned a lot. Uh, really, really fun exploring all the different aspects of aviation. And, and thank you for all you've done. And thank you for your time today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, Dave, and hope to see you soon. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. love talking to Dave because I always learn so much. Great to have him with us on the show. Another talk I'm really looking forward to is our live recording with Ted Christie, the CEO of Spirit Airlines, at Aviation Festival Americas 2023 in Miami Beach. We'll be on stage with Ted on the morning of May 17th, and at Aviation Festival Americas both days of May 16th and 17th. Come see us. Airlines Confidential listeners get a special discount. Just go to airlinesconfidential.com and click on the banner and use AC50 to save 50% on your registration. Now let's turn to this week's mailbag. Jim from Santa Monica wanted to add context to my comments last week about the $30 an hour minimum living wage proposal for workers at Los Angeles International Airport that is likely to be considered by the Los Angeles City Council. Jim says Los Angeles World Airports, the airport operator, has had a living wage ordinance since 2010, which is adjusted annually. The current cash rate, he says, is $23.81 without health benefits. So the City Council proposal for an immediate raise to $25 and a further $1 annual increase until reaching $30 by 2028, might actually be lower than what the current Wawa rates would be on their own. Additionally, for reference, LA City hotels also already have living wage rates, Jim says. Currently, that's at $18.86 an hour. To put things in perspective, Jim adds, it's probably important to keep in mind with the tight labor market and difficulty filling positions, that there likely are very few working in these industries in LA at existing minimum wages, as most employers must pay often far more in order to attract and retain. Lastly, 
Such ordinances are not unique to Los Angeles or to California. Many airports and cities have them, including the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority, the Massachusetts Port Authority, the Chicago Department of Aviation, the Port of Seattle, and so on. Well, thanks, Jim, for that good information. I think that does add context and tells us a lot more about the labor situation in Los Angeles. It adds great context and actually makes that $30 sound more reasonable in that context, too. Yeah, it really does. And if if they're already having to pay high rates, it's already baked into the rates and charges for airports and the fares passengers are paying. Well, Kyle from Minneapolis responded to a comment I made about a number two airline not being profitable anywhere. Minneapolis is my home airport, he says, and I'm a big fan of Sun Country Airlines. It holds only 10% of the market at MSP, but that represents almost all of its passenger network. It hasn't always been profitable, but it's had a lot of success being the number two airline at MSP its entire history. I took my first flight ever on Sun Country as a seven-year-old to Disney World decades ago and try to fly them whenever I can. P.S. SkyWest is technically the number two airline, but nobody buys a ticket on SkyWest. Kyle, you're right. SkyWest is number two, but everybody's buying Delta, making them even bigger. You're right, Kyle. When I think of number two airlines, I actually wasn't thinking about a Sun Country in Minneapolis or Spirit in Dallas or Spirit in Chicago, where Spirit is number two in Dallas, number three in Chicago. I wasn't really thinking of a low-cost airline skimming the bottom end when there's a large dominant player in the hub, but they are number two airlines. So you're right, and you caught me on that. I was thinking of the cases where two airlines try to be the big kahuna at a single airport. So what Airtran was trying to do in Atlanta didn't work. When Continental Airlines long ago was a number two airline in Frontier, that didn't work. People question whether Americans' position in Chicago being a little smaller than United ever is going to make sense long term. And when I was thinking about number two airlines, that's the way I was thinking about it. But if you've got a big guy at the airport and you want to skim at the lower end, go for it and you're going to win at that. And Sun Country is such an interesting carrier. They've had to be creative to do that, right? They were carrying boxes during the pandemic uh, when there are no passengers. Uh, they're 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 flexible um, and uh, and and creative. Um, so more power to them. I think they've done a great job. Ben, here's one from Pete in Tucson, going back to our discussion about the impact on pilots of the pilot seniority system. Pete says. At the end of your recent episode, you had a brief discussion of the pilot seniority system ingrained into airline culture. When Eastern Airlines ceased operations, there was a push, mostly by Eastern's pilots, 
to form a national seniority list so pilots facing layoff through no fault of their own could carry their experience and service history to another company. It was self-serving greed that union pilots at other airline pilot association represented companies put the kibosh on that idea, which would have rewarded the public by bringing more experienced pilots into a company after being vetted through their own hiring process. Starting over at the bottom is part of the reason many senior airmen and airwomen have left the airlines. Another key aspect of having a seniority system is that for the overwhelming number of pilots, ranking based on skills is extremely difficult. I don't know that Sully Sullenberger or Al Haynes of United 232 fame for younger listeners were obvious standouts until they were put to the ultimate test. Thanks for the comment, Pete. A national seniority system would be a bit like free agency for pilots, but it would be the reverse of baseball or basketball free agency. It would likely reduce the bargaining power a union would have at an individual airline. You could see how under a system where pilots could move to any airline, wages would be lower for pilots since airlines could easily replace high-priced experienced pilots with less expensive, less senior pilots. For airlines, training costs could be much higher if pilots are jumping airline to airline, but it certainly would make flying more similar to the rest of the working world. Most of us working for companies can go to another employer for a better job or a better location or better benefits or whatever reason we want. We are not locked into the same uniform for our entire career. That's right, Scott, but we can also get fired from those jobs one day when we just walk in the office too. So there's trade-offs, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Two other interesting questions, Ben. And and, and this is this is fun stuff. Lewis from Indiana says, I've been waiting for this interview for a while with Randy Babbitt. Thank you guys. I think more people agree about the negative effect of the ridiculous fifteen hundred hour rule and it's time to change back to two hundred and fifty hours. A question for you, Ben. I know this channel is about airlines. I have been a truck driver for the last five years. Can you educate me and others about how in the world Spirit Airlines started as a trucking company? I didn't know about this, Ben. Tell us. That's great, Luis. Yes, Spirit did start as a trucking company in Detroit, Michigan, and the owner of that trucking company decided to start flying some gambling junkets to Atlantic City. And Detroit Atlantic City, on a charter basis, was the first thing Spirit flew. It wasn't until 1992, after it was a charter airline for about 10 years, that it changed its name to Spirit and became a regularly scheduled carrier. That's interesting. I wonder if they ever thought about doing cargo. Well, they have, but they always called their cargo baggage. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. And someday we'll no doubt charge by the pound. And lastly, Joe from California says, Hi, guys. Love the show. Been listening for over three years. I was watching a documentary about United Flight 23, the so-called fifth airplane. I was wondering 
if you both know anything about it or potentially think that the aircraft was targeted and failed on 9-11. Ben, I don't know anything about this except that I had heard about it and I do know the 9-11 Commission looked closely at the possibility of additional attackers on additional flights for the 2001 terrorist attacks and they found no evidence of that. United 23 is not even in the report. Like Joe, I was surprised to hear about this recent show, which called itself a documentary. I was surprised to learn it was done by TMZ, which is known far more for its ambush interviews with celebrities than for its detailed reporting. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it aired on Fox. TMZ does seem to know a lot about airports, however, but only when a B-list celebrity is at LAX. This show was apparently based largely on an interview with the captain of United 23, who thinks his JFK LAX flight, which never took off because the first attacks happened before it got to the runway, may have been targeted because two box cutters were found in seatback pockets on a nearby plane, not his plane, but a nearby one with a very similar tail number. That doesn't seem logical to me. The 9-11 attackers carried the box cutters with them through security because they were allowed at the time. They didn't have anyone planting weapons on planes for them. And that would have been risky since airlines swap aircraft all the time. They wouldn't necessarily have known which 767 sitting overnight on the tarmac was going to LA and which was going somewhere else. The flight time also seems too late for consideration by the hijackers. The attackers were very precise in their selection of flights, so all would be in the air before the first plane struck. The 9-11 Commission interviewed 1,200 people and reviewed millions and millions of documents. I read and wrote about the report. It was exhaustive and honest and thorough, as it should have been, both for the memory of all those killed and for the safety of all of us who travel. There will always be whack-a-mole theories about tragedies, just my opinion. But if you want to call it a documentary, you might want to actually have documentation. That's a good close on that story, Scott. I didn't watch that so-called documentary, but I heard about it. And like you, why would you think that box cutters on another plane mean your plane is targeted? And the 9-11 attacks, which obviously changed the world in so many ways, killed so many people and changed the industry we all love in so many ways, was what it was. And it's not impossible for me to think that in the many years it must have took to plan and pull that off, they might have had other ideas about number of planes or which airports to use or what targets to hit or things. But in the end, they pulled off an attack that hopefully never can be done again because of the changes we've made. Well, that's all for Airlines Confidential this week. Have a great week, everyone, and we hope to see you soon in Miami. Thanks for listening. Send us your questions and comments, and we'll have more next week on Airlines Confidential. 
This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.